The Other Side of the News is a place where we investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts in our pursuit to mine a new vein of truth through the mantle of civilization to gain a better understanding of current affairs and world events. It's spontaneous commentary. Our desire is to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. To gain an improved understanding through the lens of science, medicine, law, and beyond. To obtain compelling answers from fascinating viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We instigate thought-provoking conversations to incite and refresh your mind, propelling you to perceive our world in another way, propelling us all to perceive our world in a superior way. Together, we assume the role of an intellectual lighthouse to warn and protect passing ships from the rocks of censorship, tyranny, and lies. Until this murky veil inevitably shifts to a higher vibration. Tune in to balance your view with the other side of the news. Welcome, welcome. My name is Kinthea, and I'm one of your trio of co-hosts speaking to you from my infamous wheelhouse in the San Francisco Bay, along with Timothy Saunders, who is welcoming sunrise in southwest Turkey, and Anetta Driscoll within bungee cords of the Golden Gate. We are pleased to bring you this 111th edition, Towers of Babel, with our guest, Ken Jenkins, who stands with one foot in science and the other in psychology. Tonight, we will discuss the contentious issues within the 9-11 Truth Movement that have polarized and impeded progress for over 20 years, as well as the covert psychological factors behind the issues that create division in all areas of our lives and what we can do about it. We're going to take a look at the root cause of the contentious split among 9-11 truthers. Our guest, Ken Jenkins, is ideally suited to address this issue. He is a founding member of a number of 9-11 groups, including architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. His expertise is in two disparate fields science and technology, and psychology and brain science. He brings to the discussion a first-hand account of the impact of cognitive biases on groups like the 9-11 Truth Movement and how these biases impact our thinking. I first met Ken some 34 years ago. He is a longtime friend and fellow visionary. We ran in similar circles, and I witnessed the birth of a new art form as he began to create transcendental art images with light. Ken Jenkins is a pioneering 9-11 activist and video producer. 
He has a degree in electrical engineering from Carnegie Mellon University, and he's done extensive postgraduate study in psychology. For over 40 years, Ken has worked as a video professional. It wasn't until November of 2001 that Ken was finally convinced that something didn't add up with the narrative fed to the public about 9-11. Since then, he has produced dozens of 9-11 DVDs, nine with leading 9-11 truth author David Ray Griffin, including 9-11, The Myth and the Reality, as well as PDFs to wake people up. Ken has spoken at six international 9-11 conferences and at numerous other 9-11 events and on many radio programs. More recently, he co-produced, directed, and edited for our previous guest and favorite architect, Richard Gage. He created his 9-11 Blueprint for Truth and San Francisco Conference DVDs for AE 9-11 Truth. Ken is the founder of 9-11tv.org, and he helped co-found one of the first 9-11 local groups, the Northern California 9-11 Truth Alliance, which produced the first major 9-11 conference, the San Francisco International Inquiry into 9-11. He is currently a frequent producer of the annual 9-11 Truth Film Festival in Oakland, California. Ken's accomplishments are extensive, and for a more in-depth view, check out his bio on the guest page. Welcome to the other side of the news, Ken. I am so delighted you're joining us. Well, thank you for having me on. Well... You know, this is a journey, and we just touched on it, and I thought you might just share with the audience a little bit about your background and how you got pulled into this, and and then we'll dive into some questions. Okay. Well, the one thing I would add to the bio you just mentioned, uh, I started uh, researching about a week after the event on the 9-11 event, and it was... uh, until about the uh, end of November when I became fully convinced. Um, I, I was skeptical, but I'm also skeptical of my own skepticism. So I, I was fairly well convinced uh, within a few weeks that something was going on. But um, to be certain enough to do something about it, uh, it took a couple months. And the final straw for me, so to speak, the thing that finally got me uh, kind of past my last of my resistance was... Uh, learning uh, more about the the first Pearl Harbor. Um, 9-11 is often called the new Pearl Harbor. So the original, um, I only knew the official story on that. And in doing my research on 9-11, I ran across, uh, you know, information about the the original Pearl Harbor, which um, also points to um, not exactly a false flag, but uh, that it was a planned event in the sense that the U.S. provoked uh, that attack by uh, doing a number of, actually about eight different things to provoke Japan. And uh, 
I guess by the eighth, eighth uh, provocation, they finally uh, uh, did the attack they did. So that, that sort of broke the last of my resistances, which had to do with the scope of the event. I, I didn't, I knew, I knew a lot about things, uh, kind of the assassination, of course, and uh, the Federal Reserve and uh, the cover-up of various things. But um, I, I had this resistance that I actually talk about in some of my writing of uh, when, thing is, uh, when something is done at a massive scale, it's harder to believe that it could be true and it could be covered up. But um, the cover-ups are pretty effective these days. So, Ken, as I know you to have a really diverse background, and as you looked out on the landscape of this event, 9-11, I'm curious, how did your background make you alert to things that others would not see? Investigating this, what was it that you saw that others didn't see? Well, I, as I say, I've, I've looked into other things in the past. I, I, I started looking into the uh, JFK assassination in the 70s. And uh, as the years went by, well, another, another thing that I realized uh, really early on was a total scam was the war on drugs. Um, you know, if I prefer to smoke pot rather than drink a beer, then I'm a criminal. <laughs> it's like... That that doesn't seem right to me. So um, I, I I had a, a background of being skeptical of of um, the kinds of things that many governments do all over the world, and the U.S. seems to be one of the worst that that does uh, that, that has various things going on that basically add up to me adds up to one word, which is corruption. Um, and the corruption's just on a massive scale at this point. And so that, that just makes me skeptical of, of uh, things that happen. Well, I'm, I'm aware that you have a science background, having gone to Carnegie Mellon, and also psychology. So did you start looking for other scientists to collaborate with? I mean, how did that unfold? Well, the science part went in really... Uh, it was well into 2002, really, before I started hearing about uh, three towers in New York in, ter in terms of how the third tower happened, Building 7, but also um, that the Twin Towers, the way they fell, was consistent with a controlled demolition. Uh, that wasn't information I ran into early in my research, and so I kind of came to the conclusion uh, I did in November without that crucial information. And it's more learning about false flags and the history of false flags was probably one of the most uh, compelling bits of evidence uh, up to that point. But anyway, in 2002, one of the first videos came out that uh, talked about the, the, uh, how the three towers fell in New York, and I didn't even know about Building 7 at that point. And that's, to me, the main place the science comes in, at least at that time, was... Uh, distinguishing how and why the, the three buildings were controlled demolitions is uh, best done with analyzing the physics. Um, free fall speed is, is the most obvious one. That if, build, if a building were to fall at free fall speed and, and perfectly straight down with sudden onset, um, 
that's, those are all trademarks of controlled demolition. And uh, nothing can fall at free fall unless it's free, meaning unencumbered. So if a, if a building falls at free fall, then that means the entire support structure of the building is somehow very carefully been removed in a very precise way. And that's, that's demolition. So that's, to me, that's the, the biggest part of the science. We'll, we can talk a little bit more about that, uh, the science aspect later, but um, that, that's the most compelling evidence. Um, and, and, I, and I, as you mentioned, I've worked very closely with architects and engineers. I was one of the first engineers to sign on and um, produced um, two videos and then a third one uh, I worked on, but it was just uh, shooting people for explosive evidence, which is, I think, their best video. Well, in those early days, I'm wondering what was the kind of receptivity you were getting from the public as you were putting out these really shocking thoughts? Well, initially I didn't. <laughs> uh, as I say, it took till I was fully convinced in uh, November of 2001 that I even thought about, well, what do I do about this? Um, but what I realized very quickly at that point was this slowly emerging movement as it became uh, around this issue is going to need video. And I'm a video producer, so I think I have a job. It's not a good paying job. <laughs> a little hard to uh, to to uh, get that part of it happening. But the uh, that's as you mentioned in the introduction. That's the main one of the main things I've done for the movement is is create uh, quite a number of videos over the years. And beyond that, uh, it was a question of uh, as you say how how to get this out to the public. And um, the videos take time and. So that wasn't the initial thing I, I did. What I actually did is taught myself PowerPoint, put together a PowerPoint presentation, um, kind of following in the footsteps of, uh, of um, Mike Rupert, who was uh, very quick to be doing public presentations with PowerPoint. And um, so I kind of followed in his footsteps a little bit in terms of doing uh, small presentations locally. But I really needed the support of a group to... Uh, to have an audience. And so I ended up joining uh, first a local peace group that had was founded shortly after 9-11, which was 9-11 truth friendly, so to speak, and um, eventually did a number of several presentations uh, with this PowerPoint presentation I put together. I was covering the basic evidence and answering questions. Um, it wasn't until... Um, Gosh, I would say, uh, well, even for my first presentations, I was editing existing videos. And editing's always been my, my main uh, strength in the video production world. So I started editing other productions and then uh, eventually started producing them. Mm -hmm. So as you were gathering all this information, I'm curious, were the scientists you were working with, were they agreeing with each other? Were you, like, coming to... Or were there so many different perspectives? How were they interacting with each other? Uh, in my experience, uh, scientists, engineers were actually a little slow to come to this, uh, to, to look at the 9-11 issue. Yeah. And I think Richard Gage would confirm that. Richard himself uh, 
he's the founder of, of uh, Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, Richard Gage. Uh, and he and I have, you know, now worked together on quite a number of things. But um, he first got uh, aware of the, the demolitions hearing David Ray Griffin speaking on uh, uh, local Pacifica Network, KPFA here, uh, and literally pulled his car over to the side of the road. He was so uh, shocked by what he was hearing uh, that he... Uh, he, he, just to be safe, pulled his car over and, and listened to the entire program before he went on with his day. Um, now, our, Richard's an architect. Uh, we're talking science, which is engineering. And um, uh, the scientists initially, again, were more reluctant, more slow to look into this. And that's one of the reasons uh, Richard put together the organization he did as architects and engineers because he wanted to bring in the science aspect and not all architects are, are scientists. All engineers have to be scientists. Mm -hmm. uh, so therefore, uh, it was a very slow, gradual process and, and uh, a lot of the science was uh, specifically, again, uh, within the or architects and engineers uh, organization. Uh, beyond that, um, I, I didn't know a lot of uh, other scientists, and to this day, actually, even people like I went to college with, uh, there's only one in particular that's really picked up on 9-11, uh, even 20-plus years later. That's quite a journey, and this is a perfect time for us to go to break. You're listening to The Other Side of the News, and our guest tonight is Ken Jenkins, and the show is called Towers of Babel. Co-hosting are Timothy Saunders, Annette Driscoll, and myself, Kintia. We shall return. One of the ways that this organized crime system has been able to monopolize the media and has been able to uh, control the government and control perception at a, on a wide scale. Is because it's the banks at the core and they've been given the privilege of creating money out of thin air using a technique called fractional reserve banking. where the central banks backstop the money center banks to create money out of thin air. So when you go to get a loan, whether it's a mortgage or a car loan, that's not depositor money that they're loaning you. Uh, they just credit your account with some dollar credits and you're off to the races. And then you spend the rest of your life paying interest on a mortgage that somebody created out of thin air. And that's the reason why the bank is the largest building in every city on the planet. Because they're making outrageous profits by getting to loan money at interest that they created out of thin air. 
This is Etienne de la Boisi Squared, the author of Government, the Biggest Scam in History, Exposed. And some of my favorite conversations are the ones that I have on the other side of the news with Timothy, Annetta, and Kinthia. Thank you for doing what you do and providing the service that you provide. Listening to the other side of the news, this is the 111th edition of our show, Towers of Babel is the title, and we're speaking with Ken Jenkins. I'm Timothy Saunders, and with Kintia and Letta Driscoll, we are continuing with our show. Ken, can you, I'm sure you can, what, what were you doing on 9-11 uh, in 2001? Can you remember what you were doing there? Yeah, I, th- I think probably everyone can. Uh, actually, I was sleeping in. Uh, I'm a night person, so I tend to uh, get up late in the morning, and my uh, roommate at the time was banging on the door, you got to turn the TV on. I was like, that was the middle of the night for me. And I I said, go away, I got to sleep. And uh, although he sounded pretty upset, and then, uh, I don't know, half hour, hour later, he did it again, and finally I realized I'm not going to be able to get back to sleep. So I got up, and he told me what was going on, and uh, I think I did turn on the TV for a minute or two, and I said, oh, well. Um, I wasn't particularly uh, affected at the time because um, it, I know I knew too much about U.S. foreign policy and how many countries this country is, has screwed over, so to speak. Um, and uh, I just figured, well, you know, finally somebody did something uh, to, to strike back. And why would anyone be surprised? Anyway, I wasn't surprised. Uh, I, I just figured it was blowback is the term I, I, I learned that applies to kind of where I was coming from. I, I didn't suspect anything other than blowback. I was upset that the course of history had been disturbed in a very adverse way and that uh, the better world that I've been working towards, uh, as I think all of us have for a long time, uh, was sort of, I don't know, postponed or set back a bit. That was upsetting to me. Uh, but the, the event itself, as I said, I, I just considered to be blowback. And much as it's tragic to have 3,000 people die, what most people don't want to think about, because, of course, it's not on the corporate news, is that about 10, pe- 10 times that number of people die every day of, star- of needless starvation on this planet. If you want to get upset about people dying every day needlessly, um, you know, why wouldn't you be upset about 30,000 a day and be so upset about 3,000 on one particular day? Anyway, that's kind of where I was coming from. And as I said, it wasn't until a week later that I started looking into uh, some suspicious aspects. Well, that's, uh, that's a day I think most people can remember. I remember I was ordering a beer in a in a bar in, in a, on a little Greek island. Um, but that's a long story, but <laughs> this little TV up in the corner of the, the, the bar and suddenly it's like, what the hell is that? That's, um, 
that's not a small plane which was reported on the radio uh, uh, a few a few a few minutes before but the you mentioned the context uh, blowback from foreign policy not so long before this event there was i think a uh, somebody admitted that in fact there were there was a loss of some is it so many trillion dollars of the uh, the uh, military spending funds and uh, maybe and that's it can you, you can jump in and, and remind me correct me because it, it is a little bit vague at memory but uh, I think that was that was announced only just a few days before 9-11 if not the day before 9-11 wasn't it that the, the military spending had yeah, the, overrun and was was lost there's no track of where that money had been spent or something along those lines yeah basically it was Rumsfeld it was, I believe uh, making the announcement just a day or two before 9-11 uh, that there were there were counting errors uh, uh, t coming up to around three billion, I believe, and um, three billion. Excuse me, <laughs> trillion yeah, would have been. Yeah, that is. Uh, yeah, I think it was three. Anyway, the, three billion. But anyway, the point is, uh, it was. It was, it was really uh, actually. He was. What he was really talking about was accounting errors, not actually missing money, which is a different uh, thing. But um, that detail of my, uh, aside. Um, in, in, and, you know, I, I think may, maybe where you're going is the accounting office happened to be uh, where the plane hit, and supposedly that stopped the... Uh, in the Pentagon. In, yes. That investigation, it didn't stop it. Uh, it barely slowed it down because the Pentagon's a big place and they have a lot of people, and there were plenty of other people to pick up the ball on that investigation. And mm. apparently they did eventually figure it out, but figure it out, what does that mean? Because uh, the Pentagon flows through so many missing billions of dollars. Uh, that, that's a whole issue in itself. Well, Keith just posted in, in the chat window is 2.6 trillion. So uh, it was trillion. Okay. Um, yeah, it, it is. Yes. What, well, what's a million more in a, between friends, right? Yeah. Trillion. Mm -hmm. A lot of money, yeah. but it was yeah. apparently it was accounting errors, not missing. And apparently the, that was sorted out. But, um, the, the question of the accounting area and the plane hitting is one we might want to touch on later. Sure. So in my high altitude, look at all of this. I think we can agree that uh, it was some form of controlled demolition. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I mean, the three towers. Yeah. At, in the World Trade Center towers in, in New York. Yes. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm jumping around. So do you think that the 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 attack on the Pentagon or the, the alleged attack on the Pentagon was a separate issue or uh, all part of the same scheme? Well, that's that's a very good question. It brings up a lot of issues. And I guess one of the reasons uh, I'm here is to talk about that. The um, There were four planes uh, that are recognized and known. It looks like there were a few others that might have been intended that didn't, didn't make it. Um, but the the hitting of the the three buildings with the three planes, and it would have been four if if not for some heroes on Flight 93. Um, you know that's that's one operation, the, the planes operation. Um, that's the one where you bring in Al Qaeda and the, the hijackers and that sort of thing. The question of the three towers falling as a result is in is in a, in a very real sense of very separate issue. The buildings definitely would never have fallen from 
the fires, especially the third one, which wasn't even hit by a plane, Building Seven. So you can't you can't uh, account for that that building falling because of planes. Uh, it's just you know one of the biggest clues that there's something very weird going on, and it's I think one of the reasons that Building Seven is scarcely ever mentioned uh, after the day it happened in any of the corporate mainstream media because it's it's the biggest clue that uh, there's something seriously wrong with the official story of 9/11. Uh, but but it's a separate operation, and I even uh, I'm I'm amongst a number of people that believe that. Uh, it may have even been different groups of people and, and different uh, even countries involved with uh, the fact that the, the buildings were demolitions. Uh, do we want to even talk about why they were demolitions uh, at this point, or are we going to go into other stuff, or what would you like to talk about? Well, I think we should just clarify that the the event that happened in the Pentagon, the it was said to be a plane and the evidence of a, of a larger plane is quite spurious. There were there was a lot of video surveillance, although apparently it wasn't available. The cameras weren't working, or it was collected and never shared. I think there are a few frames of footage from video camera where it shows something a lot smaller, a white cylindrical, uh, which we say projectile, hitting the side of the Pentagon, which doesn't really resemble that the shape uh, or even the, 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 the crater, should we say, there was, there's a lack of crater, lack of crater where the engines would have hit. There's a, a shape in the wall of the Pentagon that was apparently made by the aircraft hitting was not the correct shape, people suggest, from a larger plane. So there are a lot of question marks there. That was one event. Um, there was the other event where a plane looked like it crashed somewhere over woodlands. Uh, but again, there was not really a lot of evidence to say that this plane was large. Uh, the, the debris field was spread out, but yeah, flight somehow a lot of it disappeared. Oh. Or, uh, flight 93, excuse me, yes, yes. So there was the, there were the, those two events. And then there was the, the Twin Towers, obviously, where uh, larger planes were seen to hit each tower, one after the other. And then somehow later in the day, Building 7 just fell again in free fall, um, without any, any projectiles hitting it whatsoever. And there's all the different um, links and, and you know, points, like for example, the I, I always remember the BBC covering uh, Building 7 falling while Building 7 was still in the background of the, yeah. uh, the news uh, presenter. Very interesting, interesting moment. So again, I probably butchered all of the facts along there, but I just wanted to clarify the, the main events of the day. And, you know, as I say, from high altitude, it, it appears to be deliberate, deliberate in each case. Would you agree that so far? No. <laughs> no. Um, okay, I've, well, that, that's, that's a good talking involved, point. I've as you know, for a long time with this, and I basically did uh, for actually a period of years, uh, except everything you just said. Um, or at least had questions about everything you just said. Um, but over the course of 21 years of, uh, of intensive research and working with a lot of other people, um, I have changed my mind on several of those issues based on evidence. Um, somewhat, that's what somewhat, I love. somewhat reluctantly yeah, if, at if times, like, but uh, the evidence uh, 
basically for these the two planes you mentioned, Flight 93, the one that uh, crashed in Shanksville, and the Flight 77 that, that crashed at the Pentagon, uh, you mentioned a whole series of uh, of uh, evidence that that uh, it wasn't a plane that hit the Pentagon, and that is something that I absolutely believed with great certainty for um, about a full year, as near as I can mm-hmm. recall, right around uh, somewhere in starting in 2002 and running somewhere into 2003. Um, I would ar- argue ferociously that no plane hit the Pentagon. Um, that changed the first shift in that for me actually didn't have anything to do with evidence. It had to do with um, having a sort of heated debate with somebody in uh, at that point, one of the 9-11 groups that was mentioned that I helped co-found, um, which is the Northern California 9-11 Truth Alliance. Anyway, we had meetings uh, at least once a month, and uh, we'd often talked about the evidence and this sort of thing. And there's one particular person um, was convinced the plane had pit, hit the Pentagon. And it, as, as I said, I was quite convinced it didn't. And for, for the very reasons that you listed. And so I, uh, you know, we were having this debate, and it was a heated debate. And what, what, where, I, where I shifted was when I was driving home by myself, I was reflecting on the conversation and my part in it and how, um, how I was arguing, not so much what I was saying, because you listed those things, but the way I was, kind of the attitude, the tone, the kind of uh, where I was coming from, a sense of certainty and so forth. And I realized um, that's not how you do research. That's not how you learn things. You learn by listening and you learn by being open-minded and you learn by uh, having a mindset of openness and and, uh, wonder and curiosity rather than certainty. And so um, for me, that that approach stopped that day. Um, I, I just said that's not who I am. That's not who I want to be. That's not how I want to pursue this research. Um, I want to be more uh, open. And so um, I never had that kind of discussion with anyone about the Pentagon again because um, I was curious uh, to hear what other people had to say and why. And, and because I, at that point, I did do another deep dive into the Pentagon evidence and found there was evidence that you didn't mention and that I uh, didn't really know that was highly relevant. And in fact, it was very big evidence in the sense of it was in a sense the kind of the building seven of the Pentagon question. Um, there was a very large, very heavy generator trailer that was in the path of the, the plane. I'm going to, I'm going to just say, say what I believe is true, that there was a plane. Um, and uh, the, this generator trailer was set so, so solidly that and it's a multi-ton generator trailer. It was uh, basically rotated about 45 degrees from its original position. Uh, the top was bashed in, and it was burst into flame because it had uh, diesel f- fuel for the generator uh, on board the trailer. And it burned intensely and fiercely for um, a long time. And, and you can see it in all sorts of videos and stuff burning because it's <laughs> the biggest, brightest thing uh, in, the, in the shot at that point. 
And nobody seemed to want to look at it. Nobody seemed to want to mention it. Nobody could seem to explain it. And so from that point forward, my conversations about the Pentagon started with that. I said, well, how do you explain the generator trailer? And the answer was most of the time, what generator trailer? Like they didn't even know what I was talking about. And the ones that did answer, uh, did know what it was, had no explanation whatsoever. No one. Not one person out of it, but, you know, eventually dozens and dozens of people over a number of years had any explanation whatsoever about one of the boldest pieces of evidence of what happened at the Pentagon. So that was a big clue for me that we weren't looking at, you know, we as a movement, um, we're not looking at all the evidence. And we're ignoring evidence uh, of a, such significance that it 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 warranted being more open-minded and and keeping to asking the questions. So I stayed more or less agnostic for literally years, kept asking those kinds of questions, and um, but I didn't really pursue the matter in any full-time way because I was doing so many other things, especially once AE came along. Well, when first when David Ray Griffin came along and he started giving presentations, um, I, I wanted to make sure he was documented in the highest possible way. And um, because I have a background in professional video production, you know, I was able to do that. And I was one of the only people uh, that was able to do it on that level of quality. And so I did over time about a dozen different videos with with David, and then before that was almost over, um, I started working with AE. Um, meanwhile, I'm working with the local group. I mean, I was very, very busy, and um, so any in-depth. And plus, the, the Pentagon issue very quickly uh, became extremely divisive, and I mentioned my own heated argument with one of my fellow uh, truthers. So I just thought, we don't need this. We have the we have so much evidence. We have the now we have the demolitions. We don't need to even talk about the Pentagon to to get the public interested in what we're doing and what we see. And so I just, you know, put it on the not the back shelf, but on the second or third shelf down. Can for, may, yeah, may, may I ask you very quickly? Yes. This this uh, generator trailer. Uh, yeah. it, it could indeed be very heavy. Uh, it could be a solid mass it could be an object it could be masking uh the pentagon building itself could be what masking it could be hiding it could be yes creating a silhouette it could be changing the impact shape well it would have some uh, counter impact on the plane coming in what i'm trying to say if a plane is coming down with a certain amount of inertia and it hit the trailer it could deflect, it could potentially change the shape of the impact on the Pentagon, for example. I can understand those details. but Conceivably, yeah, by a very, very small amount, but yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Does that suddenly conjure up sort of plain debris that I didn't think was sufficiently found or enough was sufficiently found to sort of say that? Okay, well, let's jump ahead now. Okay, so that was way back in like, 2003 and then all the way through, let's say, 2009. I, I don't know when things started shifting for me. But um, uh, in the meantime, more and more evidence did become, did come out about the Pentagon. And uh, the, the way I would sum it up briefly, and we can go over it point by point if you'd like, is here's all the evidence that I now know about that I didn't know about back then. 
Number one, there were at least, on record, 180 witnesses who saw the plane either come in towards the Pentagon or hit the Pentagon or both. 180 witnesses. Not a single witness ever said anything about a missile other than one guy that said it looked like a missile, but he identified it as a American Airlines 757 plane, the same guy that said it looked like a missile in the sense of how it moved. It was moving very, very fast, mm-hmm. 560 miles an hour, quite to be exact. Um, so, so you got the 180 witnesses and essentially no witnesses to the contrary. So there's there's one piece of evidence. The second piece of evidence, uh, you mentioned plane debris. There was literally tons of plane debris found at the Pentagon. It was almost all shattered into very, very small pieces. Um, and it was scattered over a very wide area. And it, most of it went into the building, so it was not visible from the... Um, from the street where, where witnesses were coming in and going, geez, I don't see a plane here. And that started the meme, no plane, that witnesses, when they, when they arrived at the Pentagon, the ones, not the 180 that saw what happened, but the ones that arrived later, uh, said quite correctly that there doesn't seem to be a lot of plane evidence outside the Pentagon. And that's because what happened with the plane, according to physics anyway, is the same thing that happened with the two planes at the tower. Um, Something was very unusual about all four planes on 9-11. And that was that normally when there's a plane crash, the pilot does everything within his power and ability to minimize damage, to save lives, and to try to do anything to land safely. And, and if he fails, you have a plane crash. And But the plane is going slow, meaning, let's say, roughly 200 miles an hour because they got to stay in the air. Um, whereas all four planes on 9-11 did just the opposite. The, uh, they accelerated during the last minute or so uh, before they hit their targets and were clocked at speeds, uh, two of them, in excess of 560 miles an hour. Where these the these phys- planes... Let me just say one thing. By the way. What the physics says Please about that, 560 miles an hour as compared to, let's say, 200, is two to three times faster. The physics says the damage that would occur, the nature of the crash, goes up exponentially with speed, meaning... The energy is proportional to the square of the velocity, meaning that if something's going three times faster, there's nine times the energy. The energy determines the destruction. Um, more recently, I made a 21-minute video uh, just titled Flight 93, which asked the question that you also brought up about what happened uh, with that plane. And apparently, it's just pretty much the same story. The plane was going again, roughly, uh, actually in excess of 560 miles an hour when it hit the ground. And what happens, we know from at least four other airliner crashes, uh, airliner crashes, which I included in that video, that were deliberately crashed at very high speed. So in other words, there was four other examples, there's more than four, but four that I put in the video that correlate very closely to what happened on 9-11, 
whereas almost no other plane crashes correlate in any meaningful way because of this huge difference in velocity. And what happened in those four other highly documented plane crashes is the same thing that happened at the Twin Towers and at the Pentagon and in Shanksville. The plane shattered into very small pieces because that's what high-energy events do. They create much higher destruction and much smaller debris than low-speed crashes. I don't disagree with your your thought process there at all. I'd just like to say that the the mass of such a plane, a 767, is something, anything between 85 and 185 tons, depending if it's flying empty or it's flying on sort of max takeoff weight. I'm saying metric tons here. So mm-hmm. uh, that momentum goes somewhere, whether it shatters or... Absolutely. Uh, that's that, that momentum, I think, is something which is, is still a big question. And therefore, if we look at the largest lumps on the plane, I can imagine that, you know, aircraft are made of sort of light aluminium. They're made of the airframes are very light. Some of them are composite these days. I actually don't know that the, the, the construction method of, of the 767, I should look it up. I'm sure you know more about it than I do. Um, but different materials disperse energies in, in, in different ways, but the engines are fairly solid. And one normally sees certainly a large block, which used to be an engine after an air crash. And that, that's something I think it's worth discussing Absolutely. a little bit more. Right. At 200 miles an hour, you always see almost complete engines that are shattered to, to a certain degree. But now we're talking 560 miles an hour. We're talking three to two to three times the, the total energy. The mass, by the way, in that same equation is linear. In other words, you increase the mass, it increases linearly, not exponentially. Uh, the 757 that, ha- that hit both the Pentagon and in Shanksville were about 100 tons. So you were right in the ballpark. Um, so you do have 100 tons of, uh, of uh, debris that should be found in those locations. And again, that is exactly what happened. There, there were, you know, extensive, um, large uh, numbers of people at both locations that literally spent weeks and weeks gathering debris, uh, including plane debris. It was all um, had to be decontaminated from jet fuel. There was a lot of jet fuel in both places. Um, and then uh, it would all ended up in, in both the films that I've worked on on these two on these two crashes. Um, I, I show all of that. I show all the plane p- pieces that were found, and many of them were somewhat sizable, especially, as you say, engine parts. Engines have a central core of titanium. They're very strong. And um, they were found, again, shattered, but in relatively larger pieces. Um, in the case of the Pentagon, um, all of it went into the building. It went through the three um the three parts, the uh, three uh, rings of the Pentagon before some of it finally emerged uh, out the exit hole into the AE driveway. And it was just all on the ground in pieces. And then if you look at photographs carefully, which you might guess I have done at great length, you can identify all kinds of plank uh, parts from, from just the visuals. You know, here's a piece of a tire, here's a piece of a wheel, here's a piece of an engine. Here's a piece of particularly the landing gear 
which actually is more massive uh, in terms of big pieces uh, even than the engines. And there they are. There are the pictures. There, there's where they were found. Um, it, it's all it's all there. It's, it's the problem that's happened is this, that the evidence that the 9-11 truth movement picked up on and that you articulated rather well um, was all established very quickly, um, mm. just in the first days and weeks. And all investigation that followed was basically, embarrassingly, ignored by the 9-11 truth movement. There have only been, in more recent years, uh, a handful of uh, fellow engineers and architect, uh, not architects, but engineers and scientists, um, and other people without those degrees, who have looked uh, more carefully and said, you know, look, this uh, plane hit the Pentagon thing has been the single most divisive issue ever in the in the 9-11 truth movement. People, as I said, I, I described an argument I had with one guy way back in like 2003, say, um, these arguments have been going on now for 20 years. And in certain groups, including the ones that I co-founded here in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, um, they got so intense that there was literally a... Uh, a somewhat successful attempt to hijack the group by using secret voting systems to mm. determine what we show at the film festival. So there were separate lists of people who wanted uh, to show evidence of the, the, of the type that you presented. It had been presented many times in many videos, but they wanted to just keep presenting that same evidence over and over. Can, there, were, there were very few people like me that objected, and it literally almost split the group apart. Can, this is a serious mm -hmm. issue. This is a perfect milestone to pause at. Okay. Uh, let's come back, and I'm sure has some questions for you, and I, I know uh, I have some well. more as well. I'd be happy to answer. But, uh, so you're listening to the other side of the news, and we're going to go to break. We'll be back shortly. Well, I think you're looking with this great reset, you're looking at Mr. Globaloni's efforts to move everybody into a cashless society, which, you know, like it or not, that's a one-way mirror, folks. Because at that point, you're not dealing with a currency, you're dealing with a corporate coupon that they can adjust the value of at the push of a button, depending on whether or not you're good little boys and girls. And if you're getting into a system where all of the infrastructure of financial clearing is in the hands of the bankers, that's not a system you want to go into. You look at the West, and more importantly, if you look at what some people call the Anglosphere, the, the Western powers that are English-speaking, the United Kingdom, Canada, United States, and so on, I do think it's the case there. They're using a health crisis really to drive a, a political agenda. And the health crisis itself is largely blown way, way out of proportion to what's actually the case. If you look at what Mr. Globaloni is up to, they are recreating slavery. And the, the thing that is unique about slavery is they now have the means of perfecting the capital 
because now they can literally implant your body with the means to track you. It's not going to go away overnight, but there are already, uh, I think, some hopeful signs of cracks beginning to appear in the edifice. This is Joseph P. Farrell, and for all the news the media doesn't like you to hear, tune in to the other side of the news. Good evening and welcome back to the other side of the news. We're back with trains in the background here. So, <laughs> oh my. Um, so we were having a great conversation with Ken, Timothy was, and frankly, he, he covered a lot of the points I wanted to talk about, but we'll see how we do here. I wanted to ask you a few of the technical things before I move on to some other stuff, Ken. And uh, so... I, I'm hearing what you're saying. I'm I'm not convinced. I'd like to hear, I'd like something that would convince me. Uh, that would be one thing. But you know, I'm looking at this whole thing. I'm looking at the angle at which this plane came in, which is an amazing angle. Like, wow! I don't know how a plane does that without self-destructing up in air. Uh, maybe I don't understand that, but I've always understood a certain amount about that and how these how much they can change or not. That's one thing. And another thing, when we were talking about the generator, um, I, I, I'm not understanding anything about the generator being hit and being in the way uh, that a missile couldn't have done the exact same thing. So I'll start with those questions and, and then move on from there. Okay. Um, as I start to answer that, what I'd like to do uh, is also mention sort of where a lot of this information has come from that I'm presenting and that I had put into a short film, which was supposed to be a long film, but ended up being a full-day conference in Denver in May of 2019 with five speakers, uh, all from the group Scientists for 9-11 Truth, all of whom, including me, originally thinking no plane hit the Pentagon, every one of them um, eventually looking at enough of the evidence to realize that we now think that it was a mistake that actually the plane did hit the Pentagon. Um, and so we literally have a full day of evidence <laughs> um, that could be presented and has been presented and exists on video. And I invite you to see it and um, just to say that this is not a, a casual uh, thing of saying a plane hit the Pentagon. All of us had to go through the cognitive dissonance to literally change our beliefs about what happened based on evidence. And for some people, it was rather traumatic. Um, Wayne Costi, in particular, has become one of the best researchers, uh, went through days of not sleeping, nights of not sleeping, um, just because he finally looked at enough evidence that he realized, oh my God, all the people that I have argued with, um, I owe them all about an apology sort of thing. Anyway, um, so that's part of it. And some of the specific evidence, so I'll just mention one thing that is a sort of a, totally deal, a total deal changer, if you can grasp it. Um, and it is a bit technical, but it basically is this. All 
all air, airliners have on them, and most people are sort of familiar with the idea of black boxes. There's two, two black boxes on every plane. Their purpose is to be able to help crash investigators understand uh, what happened to the plane before it crashed uh, with the hopes of not repeating whatever happened or learning uh, how the crash happened. And the two, the two um, black boxes are actually bright orange, so they can be found easily. They're made to be virtually indestructible, although nothing is indestructible, and uh, to survive plane crashes. And it turns out uh, on 9-11 that four of those black boxes were found, two for Flight 77, two for Flight 93. There's a question marks about the ones at the World Trade Center. And um, the one that's of immediate significance to our discussion here is the called the Flight Data Recorder, FDR is the acronym for Flight Data Recorder, on board Flight 77, the plane that hit the Pentagon. It was found inside the Pentagon. It was recovered. It was in serviceable shape so that the data could be recovered. And um, the scientist group um, got that data. We got the raw data, so it hasn't been altered or anything. Um, we got a, an expert. Um, from New Zealand, it turns out, um, the, the scientist that contacted him was from Australia, that would help us decode that information. He's a person who has been employed by airliners and, and so for, uh, airline companies uh, to help decode a flight data recorder, a total computer whiz. So he was one of the five speakers in Denver. And he was there to help authenticate that uh, data so that we could refer to it with some authority. And um, what the flight data recorder is, it records a whole bunch of parameters of the plane that have anything to do with the plane's flight. And that would include its speed, its altitude, its longitude, its latitude, uh, all kinds of data about all the engines, all the control surfaces, the rudders, the ailerons, all those stuff is all monitored on a second by second, actually fraction of a second by second basis. And all that data is recorded and is re and when recovered, tells you almost everything you'd ever want to know about those planes. And we have that data for both Flight 97, uh, 93 and uh, 77. And what those data streams tell us is that what happened to those planes on 9-11 is almost exactly what we were told by the official story. Now, I just committed heresy. I have just said um, official story and that I somehow think part of that official story is true. And that makes me a suspect within my own movement after 21 years of working for the movement. And it makes everyone in Denver um, worthy of scorn and, and, and uh all kinds of stuff, just for suggesting that there's data that indicates those planes hit those targets. And the big question that I want to cover later in this program is why is that? Why is it that we say that we're investigators and we say that we're trying to, you know, figure out what happened in 9-11, but when somebody comes up and says something that we don't believe because we've come to believe one thing and now we believe something else, all of a sudden, they become the enemy, and they become... Well, I can answer the question for you. 
Well, of course you can. Go ahead. I can answer the question because uh, there's so much psychological warfare and it's so easy to uh, warp someone's mind with various things that then we start to question it all. I mean, you can, like, for example, you say, well, there's 180 witnesses and I have in my notes slash shills. And the reason I said that is because I know factually that people get paid off to say things. So when someone says there's 180 witnesses, I go, Hmm, are they real? Because I've been around this for a long time too. Not, you know, my, my thing came in through banking, but you know, whatever. Uh, the thing is, you know, I'm still sitting here going, okay, so how, how is it that those boxes were so neatly taken care of? Could they they were planted as far. <laughs> they weren't at all. Okay, neat. maybe, <laughs> may, maybe not. Maybe they, you know, maybe they. You know, I'm just, I'm playing devil's advocate right now. I'm still, I'm still waiting for the the coup de gras here. Uh, so. You know, for example, the, the convenience of many things throughout this that we saw that were planted for, like, passports. You know, oh, the whole thing, everything's dustified, you know, which looks like an EMP to me. But anyway, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, then the passports are fine. Or there's a flight data recorder. And I'm still saying, okay, um, I've, st- I've, I've, I've actually been there and I've been physically in the Pentagon in the bowels of it. I had access to things that a lot of people might not um, because of a, a family relative that I, you know, was, was high up in there. And I, I'm looking at these walls and I'm like, okay, I get this. I hear it and I don't believe it. Here's why. And it's because those walls are super thick concrete. And I, I know that no matter, for example, a super thick wall, concrete wall, if you accelerate in a car and you just go, you know, you're going to like 150 miles an hour, and I've done that in cars, you hit a wall, that concrete wall, five feet thick, that's what's in the Pentagon, well, it doesn't move, but the car certainly folds up. And, I'm, and I know uh, planes, they're like, they're built so they don't have so much weight. They peel back like tin cans. So the Pentagon being built in layers, supposedly one unimpenetrable after another, inside, inside, inside. That's how the Pentagon is built, for anyone who doesn't know. So how did it get through three of those those without folding up? I mean, that sounds like a missile to me. So just convince me otherwise on that. Because, I mean, if you have a day's worth of data, tell me. Okay. Um, So... Hope, again, hopefully later in the program we'll start talking about why these things, why it's so hard to uh, change oh. your belief, because yeah, that, to... that's all ultimately what we're up against. But well, we can talk about yeah. that later. Back to the evidence. Um, yeah. A uh, seven fifty seven like the hit Pentagon is a hundred tons, uh, and again it was moving at five hundred sixty miles an hour. What we have to do is put those two numbers into an equation of the energy, because the energy is what matters. It's not the weight, and it's not the velocity. It's the combination of the two with the velocity squared. And what you end up with in an equivalency, this was a calculation done by um, another of our scientists, is that the, uh, a 757, 100 tons moving at 560 miles an hour is equivalent to four, uh, 40 excuse me, 40 fully loaded tractor-trailer trucks moving at 60 miles an hour all as one unit. 
So you, you mentioned a car crash uh, going into a wall. How about 40 fully loaded trucks hitting the same spot in the wall all at once? That's more the energy equivalent. And the walls were not five foot thick concrete. That's one of the many um, rumors that we had to dispel on doing the science on this was that the walls, uh, the outer wall had been reinforced, right? So we thought, oh, gosh, look, it's really thick. And we find this, uh, this uh, graphic that shows how the wall was supposedly reinforced. It turns out that graphic was a, in a proposal of what they were saying they would want to do to reinforce the wall. It's not actually what happened. Interesting, and, because the tour guys at the, at the Pentagon are still still proffering that one, by the way. So Okay. Well, anyway, yeah. uh, Wayne Costi, again, a, a meticulous researcher, more so than I am, actually. Um, mm -hmm. He's the one that really did, for instance, that particular research. He did a three-hour of nothing but facts, and in it was this uh, one part about the reinforcement. What was the reinforcement that was done, and this was, by the way, documented on, even on 60 Minutes on November of 2001, called uh, a segment called The Miracle at the Pentagon, which is worth seeing, uh, that the, the, the reinforcement that was done was the $10,000 multi-ton uh, windows with a very thick um, plastic uh, instead of glass that were installed all along that wall. At, a, at an exorbitant price, um, and the, the support structure to hold those windows up had to be added to the building. The wall itself was not reinforced in any additional way from the original brick and limestone other than those windows. And inside the wall was added a level of Kevlar um, of netting that catches debris, catches um, a shrapnel. And shrapnel turns out to be some of the stuff that causes the most loss of life to people in buildings that are hit with, say, a truck bomb, which was basically what they were trying to uh, protect the Pentagon again against was truck bombs, because there had been truck bombs used at several things within the few years before they started this job. So they, they did add the windows, which were which survived um, more or less intact, uh, and they, they added this Kevlar and lives were saved. So in a sense, that was rather successful, and that was the assessment that was made. But um, again, you, you need to look at the details and know the physics in order to make the equivalency. Uh, it's not of a car going 150 miles an hour. It's of um, 40 fully loaded tractor-trailer tractor trucks all hitting the same spot at the same time uh, to be the equivalent of a 100-ton jetliner going 560 miles an hour. Okay, so, so, that's, so if that's, that's one thing. Now, you notice, mm -hmm. in order to debunk these various things that we think we used to know, that's this is what I've been going through literally for years, um, it takes a long technical explanation, but that's, the, that's what mm -hmm. science does. And it's so easy to say, you know, oh, I can't imagine that would happen, but to explain what did happen takes a lot of time which is why we did a full-day presentation, and we didn't even present all the evidence in a full-day presentation. So you had other, other points you, you brought up there. You brought up a several. You want to give me another one? Right. Um, I'm having a little technical well, problem. Well, right? let's talk about the witnesses again. I made uh, – when David Chandler came to speak 
um, at the uh, at a film festival a few years ago on, at my invitation. Um, he uh, he and I had been planning, you know, what how to present, and what I did was put together a a reel of witness testimony um, that included uh, a total of about um, thirty witnesses. That many of which were interviewed within minutes of the plane crash, and were just describing what they experienced in in each case. A lot of them were on video camera. The rest of them were just audio recordings. And um, in order to try to make a convincing case that all these witnesses are somehow plants or shells or you know some part of some incredibly complicated devious plan to fake a plane hitting the building using a missile or whatever. And again, I, I believed in the missile, but I didn't know about all this evidence. Uh, you, you'd have to uh, plant a hell of a lot of people, make them look like just everyday people on the ground, have them available for the cameras when they came in, and then have any real witnesses totally somehow disappear as if they never happened and never ha never have any of them interviewed. That's a pretty big thing to, to claim, that you can get rid of every witness in the area and replace them all with other witnesses, all within the few minutes after this thing happens. And it, it really comes down to how I opened my presentation in Denver. Uh, my job was not to, print, prevent, to present all the science, because four other people were doing it. My job was to try to answer the harder question of, how do, why did we make this mistake in the first place? Why does it persist? Why are we still arguing about it over 20 years later? Um, what's, the, what's the psychological stuff behind all that? That, that was my part. But what, okay. I, what I opened my talk with was telling us, basically asking a question that most people don't ask, which is, so you're designing the 9-11 attack and you want to make people believe that a plane hit the Pentagon, an airliner hit the Pentagon, and therefore, we need to go to war and go to endless war um, because we've been attacked. That's what you want the people to believe. Now, you have two choices. You could either just take a plane and hit the Pentagon, or you could make this incredibly complex, elaborate thing where you have to substitute hundreds of witnesses. You have to substitute, you have to somehow get this tons of debris of planes that of a plane that was found. You have to blow a big, huge hole through the building. It's exactly like a plane going into the building. You have to um, f somehow uh, get hold of all the radar and fake all that stuff. Uh, radar, by the way, totally correlates uh, with the uh, flight data recorder. So all of that has to be faked. The flight data recorder has to, which is very complex, that has to be faked on the assumption that it might be found and it might be in, in working order. And, and it goes on and on and on. The, 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 there were no, no less than a baker's dozen of objects. I mentioned the tra generator trailer. There were more than a dozen objects that were hit by the plane as it approached the Pentagon in the last fraction of a second. All of that would need to be faked, including all the light poles, the generator trailer, the tree that was topped, uh, and then the actual video that was recovered um, David Chandler and I worked together on and made a video because there's one frame of the frames that were captured uh, at the Pentagon in a video camera 
um, that actually does show the plane approaching the Pentagon. The problem is very fuzzy, so it's a little hard to see. It's, it's, uh, it wasn't obvious to anyone. It wasn't obvious to me. Um, but it's there, and if you do the right techniques, you can kind of extract it from the background and, and show where it was. Um, all of that stuff, and lots more that I'm not mentioning, all would have to be faked, when what you could do instead is just use a plane. Yes, I hear what you're saying, and I've got that, but I'm going to counter it again, and I'm doing this partly to be devil's advocate, because I just want to I understand, I understand. You know, one thing, when the plane hit, so it has wings and the engines are out on the wings. That's the way commercial airliners are built, period, end of story. So yep. what are the marks on the building from that hitting? Because those are big, heavy things. Uh, right. Where did those go? That would be one question there. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay, so um, this is much, much, much easier to explain all this stuff with pictures, which I do in PowerPoint, I do in video, and we did at the festival. So at some point, if, if you're genuinely interested, um, get your eyes around those things and, and you'll see the pictures. We're going to illustrate what I'm saying here so people watching this video will see, see what we're talking about. The hole in the, video, in the Pentagon, yes, another, another question mark. Um, turned out to be a total of uh, about 100 feet wide. Um, most of the, all of the heavy parts of a plane are well within 100 feet width. The only thing that's left is the wingtips, and they're the lightest and um, they're the lightest part of the plane because they're way out at the end of the plane, uh, the, the rudder and the, and the air, all that uh, stuff that sticks out. The engines were also easily fill, fit within that 100-foot hole. Um, it extended into the second floor for about a 20-foot width, and that's the part of the that 20-foot hole in the second floor was part of how this whole mistake started because uh, Thierry Masson, in his book, one of the first books published on 9/11, um, got hold of a photograph that showed only the 20-foot hole in the second floor, did not show the 100-foot hole in the first floor. And he published that and that picture alone to say the hole was too small. It turns out connected with that 20-foot hole is a 100-foot hole. Uh, they're contiguous. And um, all the heavy parts of a plane will go into that 100-foot hole. And it's, just it's the right shape, too. Okay. Well, I I'd love to see that picture because the pictures that I saw, I don't, you know, maybe I saw something. You saw the 20-foot hole probably, yeah. Um, so that's what I saw because <laughs> there was a reporter out there and I do have the video, uh, that was, they tried to memory hold and it, it downloaded, but the guy was standing there right after and he's saying, you know, he's not seeing, you know, any real debris out there. Right. He, right. Fire, blah, blah, blah. I know you've seen that video. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I go back to, I go back to the psychological aspect, which is, is, you know, people it, People's minds are easily manipulated. We, you know, they have CGI. We know that they've had CGI for quite, they've had CGI and been using it longer than we were aware of it. Now we absolutely know that things are going on. So, and as far as, I mean, yeah, as far as 180 witnesses, well, why did they go around and confiscate all the security camera footage from every local business that was with any? They was the FBI. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, yeah, the trusted, trustworthy FBI, right. Right. Yeah. Okay, do you want to talk about cameras? That's one of my expertise. I'm a video camera guy. Okay. I, I, 
Yeah, that would be great. Because I, I had a big issue, too, because okay. uh, there, was the, there, was the, there was a frame that showed uh, the plane that was mostly hidden behind a post, and it, it trailed white smoke. And that was one of the many things that I said, I have to be able to explain this or I will not make a video and show it under my name. I have to be able to explain every single piece of evidence, and including everything you've said and has been said earlier. And I can. It just takes time. And that's why I was going to make a film. But um, I instead of made PowerPoints and I've worked with the scientists and, you know, we have a days full of evidence. And, and so that suffices for now. Um, so the white smoke turned out to be. Do you know the white smoke I'm talking about in the the frame from the video camera? Well, uh, yes, but I, what I was trying you were to asking say, about the confiscations by the FBI. I was trying to say, Ken, is we're at the bottom of the hour. We need to go to break and come okay. back. Okay. <laughs> to say. So we're not going to be able to cover this in in an hour. I can say we did a full day conference on it. So right now we're going to go to break, and uh, we'll be right back. Thank you. At a time when our freedoms are in jeopardy, this show, The Other Side of the News, is bringing to you amazing guests with truth to tell. As many of you know, we are now expanding our show on several platforms. One of them is Rumble. To find our show, go to rumble.com forward slash Tosin. That's R-U-M-B-L-E dot com forward slash T-O-S-N. To support freedom from censorship, be sure and subscribe to our Rumble channel. And please, hit the Rumble like button to the shows you feel contribute to your well-being. That way, the algorithm will push us higher in the search field and give greater exposure to our amazing guests. We deeply appreciate your support, and we look forward to bringing you more revealing shows with guests that bring you uncensored truth with information you can act on for your well-being, your health, and your freedoms. It is our honor to serve you and to uplift you with every guest and every show. Till next time, peace. Take a look at what is going on with us now. You have vax or no vax. You have mandates or no mandates. You have uh, pharmacies who are not allowed to make a pres prescriptions on substances that they don't, you know, <laughs> that big pharma doesn't want them to have anymore. Somebody's in control of something. There's going to be a time, follow the money, where you're going to say, hey, Something really inappropriate's gone on here. We're being controlled. I mean, it's it's one thing to to have mandates and all these, and another thing to shut people up 
who say, I would like to talk about this a little bit. No, you don't. You're not going to talk. And and so we have, uh, you know, people like uh, Dr. Mercola being shut down. That is not us. That's not how we operate. People ought to at least be allowed to have an opinion and state the opinion and and have uh, say, uh, I'd like you to know that a good immune system is going to help you. So here are the things for a good immune system. But I'm sorry, you can't buy them anymore because we're not allowed to. So something's going on. So that, my friend, is going to be exposed. That's another thing that you're seeing for a while and it won't last forever. So it's there now. But believe me, it ain't going to stay because the light's going to be turned on. Just like the, the abuse of the, uh, that I've just talked about of both women and kids for priests and all. It's here in an ugly way and eventually it's going to be seen. Christ says there'll be revelations or maybe even a movie about it. It's going to be the same thing that happened when we found out with tobacco. That they were, of course, addicting our children and they had a cartoon and they knew that it caused cancer. And you know what happened with that. We shut that, basically shut that down. And now we don't smoke anymore. Hi there, this is Lee Carroll. I want to tell you about the other side of the news. In these days where we're not really hearing much good news or perhaps even what's really happening, that's where the other side of the news is different. And in that, you're going to hear not only controversy, but you're going to hear great things. There are going to be joyful things, too. I just got done with one of the broadcasts, and I encourage you to take a listen with myself and Monica. But the other side of the news, that's what we need more of in these times. Welcome back to the other side of the news. Tonight, our guest is Ken Jenkins, and the show is called Towers of Babel. And we were just having a very heated conversation or lively conversation. But I'm going to actually make a decision here to table that because I'd like to go over the topic that Ken is uniquely qualified to speak about. I had this really interesting conversation with you at an event that you were putting on a, a couple of weeks ago, and you really perked my curiosity. So you were beginning to speak about why there's such a cognitive dissonance when people are presented with new information, and I would love to give you the floor to speak a little more on that. Okay, so yeah, I'm putting on my psychologist hat now. Uh, I I had been wondering myself about why um, this debate about the Pentagon plane has been going on for 20 years, uh, 15 at that point, and um, that we don't ever seem to resolve it. And how could that be? And so part of it was to look at the evidence and, and uh, eventually coming to the conclusion as uh, an increasing number of ha people have over the years that, oops, we made a mistake on that one. It was a plane after all. So the question becomes, but why did we make the mistake and why has it gone on for so long? And the why of it is we've already talked about a bit in terms of um, the, the, the plane crashes were very unusual. We had nothing to reference in our in our you know minds of what plane crashes look like that in any way matched what happened on 9/11. And so we made some assumptions based on a lack of evidence that 
if if it wasn't if it doesn't match what we think we know about plane crashes that it's not a plane crash um, that's turned out to be wrong because the velocity was so high as I mentioned earlier but the uh, the other part of it is uh, okay so we got in our minds that there was not a, a no plane that hit the Pentagon why did we kind of get stuck there? Why are we still stuck there now 21 years later? Why, why are there these questions never answered? And that's where it gets very much more complicated in the, in the realm of psychology and why we believe what we believe, how we believe it, what, what, uh, what do beliefs mean, how do they determine our behavior. Um, and it turns out to be an area of... Um, again, more scientific research, it's research in the area of the science of psychology, um, that it comes under the heading of uh, cognitive biases, biases that affect our cognition, our thinking. And these, uh, these biases have been studied for, at this point now, five, six, seven more decades, using all kinds of research um, with uh, people to to try to answer questions about uh, you know how our brain works how our thinking works um, and why it is that we can come to to not only just erroneous conclusions but we can um, not be able to seem to resolve differences uh, as a, as we're talking about today about Pentagon plane or flight ninety three or any of this stuff and. Um, the biases we're talking about are not racial biases, and they're not. Um, they have to do with matter of our thinking, and it really ultimately comes down to how our brains evolve, because we do our thinkings with our brains, and our brains are like you know sort of like a computer, and if a computer has faulty software or software that has a bias to it then the computer isn't necessarily going to get objective answers. Uh, it'll be a problem, and you might have to reinstall the software, um, certainly the operating system, in order to get that computer uh, getting accurate results again. Uh, we don't have the uh, facility to easily pre-program our brains, but our brains came hardwired from the factory, so to speak, um, to, to help us survive in a world uh, that's equivalent to cavemen world, where there's, kind of, there's large predator animals and other dangerous things that we have to be vigilant for and we, to be able to not be uh, that evening's dinner for that particular creature, saber-toothed tiger, whatever it is. So our brains were wired to uh, handle that problem. How do, we, how do we determine there's danger how do we uh, assess the danger, and how do we uh, react to the danger so that we have a chance of surviving? And if we survive, we breed, and then therefore those changes, any changes to our brain that make it better, make it easier for us to do that, those are the, uh, the things that will evolutionarily survive. And um, so that's, what our, that's how our brains are work, how they work. And there's that creates certain cognitive challenges, um, one of which is that we have to be able to react very, very quickly. We can't just go, hmm, I wonder if that's a saber-toothed tiger. Maybe I'll get together with my friends and we'll talk about it, and uh, oops, we're dinner. 
<laughs> okay, that's not going to work. It's got to be a very fast reaction. So we have to make some assumptions and then act on those assumptions to save ourselves, to, to stay alive. Um, and also, we have to make those decisions based on insufficient information. All we heard was a quiet little rustling in the brush somewhere in the dark. And we have to decide that tiny little rustle that we heard wasn't the wind, but rather a saber-toothed tiger or whatever. And so in a nutshell, that's part of how our brains evolved. The problem now is we modern humans are dealing with questions like what happened at the Pentagon. We have that same software running. And the software is not perfect. And it makes a lot of mistakes. And a lot of the mistakes have to do with these things that are called cognitive biases, which are there to handle the problems of too little information and too, uh, too little time, very little time. We have to be able to make very, very quick assessments. And there's two others, by the way. I'm simplifying. There's a total of four uh, cognitive dilemmas that have to be uh, addressed for these circumstances. So, um, so this whole field of cognitive biases has emerged um, uh, since before the early 60s is one of them I was reading about just today. And, um, and they, have, they have now identified more than 200 separate cognitive biases, all with their own names and their own characteristics. Some of them kind of overlap. They often offer, operate in combination. So you can have half a dozen of these biases operating at once in any one situation. Um, and there's one that has a name that has now made it into the mainstream, and many of those of you listening may have heard it. And it's called confirmation bias. And that's one of the ones I want to talk about. It's one of the five or six that I talked about at the Denver conference. And again, when I was presenting about Flight 93, because these are the biases that make these discussions happen and drag out for 21 or more years. So, Ken. So there's uh, a quick overview. What you're, what you're speaking of even brings to mind how visually we make quick assumptions. I remember seeing some kind of video that they were playing basketball and they had this guy dressed up in a a gorilla costume going through there. Actually, they were dancing. I think they were passing a ball around. Right. You want to say a little bit about that? I mean, like yeah. visually, it's like so mind-boggling. It you is. think it'd be so obvious, and yet it wasn't. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorites, and I I think it's amazing. I I failed the test, by the way. <laughs> um, so, so share so, with so the it, audience the test. Yeah. So so basically, it's it's this. Um, a bunch of people kind of, I don't know, you said playing basketball, I'm saying dancing around, doesn't matter. They're, they're moving around amongst themselves. And you're supposed to, you're given instructions to track how something's passed between them and, and to keep your eye on the ball, so to speak. And so, and then you watch the video and then after it's over, they say, did you see the gorilla, a guy in a gorilla suit? And most people don't. And he walked <laughs> right through the picture. And when you watch it again, you go, oh, my God, how could I possibly not have seen this? And yet it, that's exactly what happens to I think it's over two thirds, maybe three quarters of the people do not see the gorilla. They're too busy trying to track um, the thing that's being passed around. 
And uh, that's a basically a thing about, uh, it's a, ultimately a cognitive bias um, about attention. Where do we put our attention? We have this focused attention, especially when we're asked to do something which requires us to focus. We have to, you know, watch this thing get passed around. And when our attention is there, it closes out everything else. And that's all we see. And so that's, yeah, it's, it's well worth seeing. Of course, now I've given it away. So if you get it, if you haven't done it already, you'll, you'll see the gorilla because now you have your attention tuned to looking for, at it for a gorilla. <laughs> so I've spoiled the whole thing for you. Um, but the, the point is that's, yeah, that's a good example. And I'm glad you brought it up. Um, so we have these hundreds of biases. They operate all the time. They help us manage things in our world and in our modern world and with certain situations, actually, they become um, as much a detriment as a, an asset. And it turns out that there's at least half a dozen of them that directly apply to what we've been talking about today. And I, in my presentations, I talk about all of them. I'm only going to talk about one briefly today, um, but I'm going to list the others just so you know what else I'm going to talk about, partly because some of them are, again, terms that you've almost certainly heard, so it won't be so foreign. Um, I mentioned confirmation bias, but one that everyone's heard, we even use the terminology in casual conversations called wishful thinking. Well, wishful thinking is a real thing, and it really does apply, and I'll explain how. Uh, there's also something fairly commonly known, which is groupthink, that when groups get together, um, and they, especially if they're sort of isolated from other people, um, th there's a tendency to reinforce one way of thinking and exclude other ways of thinking. And that clearly applies to the 9-11 Truth Movement because it is a group. It's very insulated or uh, insular, an insular group, meaning it's kind of isolated and separate from other groups who don't know what we know. So we have to sort of huddle together and, and talk amongst ourselves. And um, so groupthink, and then there's a related one, bandwagon effect. And then um, one of the most important is under a name uh, anchoring or focalism. Um, and what I, what a lot of this stuff comes down to uh, is really beliefs. Once a thought, a notion, an idea, a hypothesis, once it shifts from that category into being a belief, it radically changes. It goes from short-term memory to long-term memory, and so to speak, in computer talk, um, it becomes from being flexible to inflexible, um, it becomes from being a question to being a certainty. And whereas thoughts and ideas can be changed fairly easily, once we get a belief, it's sort of uh, written in stone, so to speak, and it become very difficult to change those beliefs. And we resist it. In fact, uh, as you mentioned earlier, we go through what's called cognitive dissonance if we're uh, presented with information that conflicts with what we believe to be true. And cognitive dissonance is very uncomfortable. It causes us to go into fight or flight mode, or fight, fight, flight, or freeze. Um, and when we go into, when we feel threatened, which is what happens when our beliefs are challenged, we feel on some level threatened. 
our body goes into fight or flight, which means uh, it, our body releases certain hormones and chemicals to help us deal with the threat that we're feeling. Again, back to the caveman, you got to run fast or fight or do something to escape uh, being dinner. Uh, and those include adrenaline, which is, you know, a, a, a very useful thing to get the body going. But it also, if you're having an argument with someone, turns the argument heated. And all of a sudden, now you're arguing with all these emotions and all these chemicals going on. And it's very hard to, to make rational conversation and to be heard, listen and be heard. Um, and, it, and it creates uh, all kinds of discord. And that's what the 9-11 movement's been going through for 21 years, is going through discord any one time anyone challenges anyone's beliefs about what happened on 9-11. So, so, go ahead. <laughs> I can go on, but do you have a specific no, question? No, I, I just, uh, I, have, I have witnessed how polarized people are around this topic. Yeah, and, and especially the Pentagon plane, more than, mm -hmm, more than Shanksville. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it turns out to be all our evidence. Anything we believe to be true, we'll, we'll, you know, them's fighting words if you question them. Right. And I can see how strongly we are attached to those beliefs. We will fight over them. <laughs> well, at least I argue. Myself. <laughs> Arguing is fine, but when it becomes heated, again, it becomes less productive. Right. May I come in very quickly? Please. Ken, I've heard... You present your thoughts and a few of them, many of them, a lot, some of your thoughts, many, many of them are logical. We need to close the show in around, let's say, eight minutes. Could you spend a few minutes just giving a summary of what you actually believe happened on 9-11? Because we talked a lot about the Pentagon and it seems that your, your idea is your, your thoughts, your theories, your, your evidence has led you to a different path than many of the other. I don't really like the word truther, but let's just say um, independent investigators, should we say. What do you think happened to the Twin Towers and Building 7, in summary? Well, I, as you can see by my T-shirt here, I, I actually believe that all three buildings were brought down by controlled demolition. Um, it's supported by multiple streams of evidence, free fall, instant onset, uh, turtle, total symmetry and vertical fall, all very cons totally consistent with only with uh, controlled demolition. Um, so that that's our bedrock. That's the solid thing. It's backed up by science. It's backed up with, you know, hundreds of other scientists and engineers like myself. Um, and, and then and that one alone is enough to, to cause a new investigation. We don't need any of this other stuff, but we have the other stuff and we talk about it. And, um, What's happened in my own case, um, having looked into and then eventually worked with uh, teams of people to try to present a little bit of the information that I, uh, I mean, I've presented a little bit of that information here today. It's a full day event. Um, and then looking into the Shanksville thing and finding out that, in fact, we had the we have the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder for that plane, although only the transcript of the cockpit voice recorder. Um, and therefore, you know, it did what we were told, which is it buried itself in Shanksville. I didn't believe that. And in fact, um, I went through cognitive dissonance very consciously 
when I learned that we did have a flight data recorder because, you know, I asked kind of uh, hesitantly, oh, my gosh, uh, we do. Uh, what does it say? And it says, well, plane crashed in Shanksville. And I I went through cognitive dissonance in real time, felt the changes in my body, felt the adrenaline rush through my body. Um, and uh, it was it gave me a little more empathy for the what we put people through when we try to talk about 9-11. But what, I've, what it basically has led me to is, is just sort of stepping way back to before I even got involved with this and trying to do what's sometimes called, and I think the Buddhist way is beginner's mind, to kind of erase as best I could all my beliefs and look at every piece of evidence um, we've ever presented ourselves in our group and, and tried to reach beyond our group um, with a totally fresh uh, look and say, well, okay, we made mistakes here and here. We were right about the, the buildings, but we were wrong about those, both those planes. What other mistakes might we have made that I've, I've been hanging on to because of belief? Have, have this journey led you to a point where you could, you could understand why this occurred? Do you have a theory about that? Well, I th the best theory I have is the one I guess I started with, is that um, the people that run this world, the elites that, uh, that start wars um, all the time, I mean, you know, the U.S. has been at war since World War II nonstop in multiple countries, um, there has to be a reason. The reason is, you know, I think Eisenhower was right. The military-industrial complex, um, it's money, it's banking, it's uh, all the stuff that I'm sure you talk about on this show all the time. I, I think all that stands, and I think that's the basic reason. Um, I think there are other reasons, and I'm sure you've talked about them on this program, too, of uh, wanting to, um, you know, crowd control has always been an issue for elites, there's a few of them. Everyone else is, you know, under their thumb, and um, they they live in perpetual fear of what are what are we going to do if the masses get organized and and stand up and you know and there's been times in history that's happened, and so that perpetual fear wants to keep us divided politically and in other ways, um, and. Um, I, I think that's still going on. I think it's uh, in some ways worse than ever. And I also think that it, we're exposing it more than we ever have. And that ultimately we're going to, you know, we're going to come out where we want to go. But it's going to take a lot more time at, at the rate we're going. Things are accelerating. But um, uh, I think I think we'll make it. But back to 9-11 just briefly. So where I kind of landed after all of that kind of beginner's mind reassessment was that roughly, maybe roughly one-third of all the claims we've made over the last 20-plus years about 9-11, roughly one-third of them are probably all mistakes. That would include the Pentagon plane in Flight 93. That leaves roughly two-thirds, or even if it's half and half, whatever, I don't have exact number, a quarter, a third, a half, I think it's somewhere in that range. Is mistakes and the rest of it, like the demolitions, is solid evidence that will stand in a court of law. It will stand in the um, in the court of public opinion, and eventually we'll get the new investigation that has to happen to um, 
to bring any sense of justice to what happened on 9-11. Ken, in, in a minute, do you think you could offer any thoughts you have about controlled opposition within or outside of the group? I think, um, I think we're all our own worst enemy. I think that we are that blame is a bad epidemic on this planet that we want to always blame whether it's each other or the elites or whatever I'm not saying I'm not letting the elites off you know I, I think uh, again they, they want wars and they, they want economic problems and division but I think most often like for instance within the 9-11 truth movement I have no question since I know hundreds of people and have worked for them for 20 years that we're our own worst enemies that we you know, we get divided over something like the Pentagon plane and we let our emotions and we let our biases uh, cause us to suspect that everyone that doesn't agree with us, even within the movement, is somehow an infiltrator. And um, I think it's all mistakes. I think uh, they, they've never had to invade our uh, to uh, infiltrate our movement because we, we're doing the job for them. Um, the, the ambiguities about some of the information, the way we 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 resolve we don't resolve it and we resolve it uh, uh, you know we that we fight amongst ourselves and suspect each other and don't trust each other I, I think that's the biggest problem and well, I think Ken, that that's manageable Ken thank you for coming on the other side of the news I know you have to go but before you do I want to make sure that you give out your contact info you want to give them your websites. Uh, my own website is 9-11tv.org. So I have the dash in there, um, 9-11tv.org. Um, I also recommend Scientists for 9-11 Truth and, of course, AE 9-11 Truth. And um, we'll also post some um, links to uh, a couple of the, the videos that I made reference to, particularly uh, a summary I made of the, of the uh, Pentagon evidence investigation, full day investigation. Uh, there's a summary video that I made that uh, is available. And, and, I'm, so and I'm the first presenter, so you can get my full presentation All right. there. Great. Thank you. We'll put those on the page. So this conversation has been enlightening for me personally because it's causing me to reevaluate so many areas of my life. Ken brought up things I'd never heard before. <laughs> It's always a wonder to see how things will unfold. Hmm. Well, with the remaining time, I'd like to turn it over to my co-host, Annetta. Well, so I promised our listeners last week that I would do some more research around dates and numbers with the Queen. And boy, is it ever interesting what I came up with and all kinds of, of little rabbit holes that I fall down. So... I don't even know where to start. I have all kinds of interesting stuff here. First of all, yeah, I want to I want to talk about the the casket and the flag. So one of the things that's noticeable if you look at any of the and, and symbology is everything here. So if you look at the casket, it's it's draped with a quite wrinkled flag, which is very un-British. Except that that is a sign of um, of treason and execution. So that's a very interesting thing. We saw that at the George Bush Senior uh, funeral. We've seen we've seen it on other ones uh, uh, when John McCain, um, which is a confirmed execution on that one for sure. Um, it's a rumored execution on George Bush, and then there was also um, 
Ruth Bader Ginsburg. There we go. So anyway, that was that's kind of interesting. I think it's very interesting. The Queen died on September 8th um, at 7.51. And that day is the same day that they came out and said that they had found 751 unmarked graves at the Canloops British Columbia residential school. That's in one location. There are residential schools all over Canada that were run by the Catholic Church. So this is... Uh, 751 is when she died, and 751, the same day they announced that they found these graves. This is the same school where, in I think it's 1963, uh, that Queen Elizabeth and Philip visited and went on a picnic with 10 kids that were never seen again. And there was an eyewitness that actually went to trial in two, 2013, and the, there was an eyewitness in, uh, this took place in Mississauga, Ontario. And the night before this trial was due to take place, they, um, the guy was, he just mysteriously died in his hotel room. Okay. So that's, that's kind of typical of what they're doing. Um, there's another, there's another number of interesting things. They changed the 10 days of mourning to 17 and we'll get back to that 17. If anybody's ever been listening to me, you know, I talk about that number a lot. So, and also September, Eighth, if you add nine and eight, is also seventeen. So there's a the seventeen comes up a lot through this. I found, so that was um, interesting. On September seventh, she was meeting with the new prime minister, and the next morning she's dead. So what's going on here? I mean, like just all of a sudden, and supposedly they were coming in and flying in. They must have known she was sick, but all of a sudden she dies. I mean, it's just the whole thing is is very fishy, right? So I wanted to talk about a couple things about the 8th of September. So this is what I started to find, and I thought it was really interesting. So if you look back, um, Time Magazine, exactly 25 years to the day, uh, had a Time Magazine cover about Lady, or Princess Diana at that point, Princess Diana dying. And she was featured on the cover. She she died, you know, right before that. And she, so that was 25 years on September 8th. It's also... September 8th, 1776 is when the Liberty Bell rang. That, that was a famous day. Philip, Prince Philip, he dies on uh, April 9th, 2021. And that's exactly 17 months uh, before the Queen dies. So another one, another one of those 17s. Last week I talked about it was 1776 from the time there was the first Q post to the Queen's death. And then I also talked about the uh, proclamation from the World Health Organization on the third, or, um, I'm sorry, March 11th, 2020, the worldwide pandemic that they announced. And then that was 9-11 days to the Queen's death. And we all know what 9-11 means. We've been going through that this week. So that's all very interesting. I thought it was. And then I wanted to point out some other things about the 8th, what's going on on the 8th. So in July, July 8th, Prime Minister Shinsu Abe, I think that's how you say that, the, he was the Prime Minister of Japan. He was assassinated on July 8th. On August 8th, the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago. And September 8th, the Queen is dead. And then on October, that's a mystery to be announced maybe, but then November 8th, we know that we have the midterm elections, which is at this point, I think, questionable at best. But anyway, that's my personal opinion. 
So that's, that's very interesting. So some of the other stuff I wanted to talk about quickly is about how this all fits in together. So there's a question going around in this community that I'm, that I run in, will Charles be the first arrest and will Charles ever be crowned King? And, and I would say, no, there's a lot of clues that we have at this point that says, no, he had no Royal regalia. He was wearing black. Now I, you can say you're in mourning. Normally he would have some kind of insignia or something going on there, but it wasn't, it was just a, a plain suit so that's interesting that they, they did that when they were signing the new illegitimate prime minister into place for, for the UK. But when I was looking around, I found February 9th, 2001. Um, at that point, the uh, House of Lords, which is for Americans, that's the checks and balances of the monarchy that kind of keeps that all in line. That's the way I understand it. I mean, Timothy could tell us a lot more. On uh, February 9th, they come in with this treaty. They sign into this treaty of Nice. And the House of Lords didn't agree. And it, it brought them into the European Union of, and I call it the Euro- European Union of Pedophilia. Um, but that's, that's really what that was. And the House of Lords did not want that. It's also at the same time, without people really understanding, the Commonwealth countries of Canada, Australia, and New Zealand also became part of the EU due to this treaty. So this is, a, this is kind of lying underneath everything. At that point, the uh, March 23rd, uh, so that, that's when the House of Lords said, you know, we don't want to be in this treaty. So the uh, Queen answers back on March 23rd of the same year, 2001, and says she has no intention of withdrawal from the Nice Treaty. On March 24th, the next day, the House of Lords enacted Article 61 of the Magna Carta, which... Uh, suspends the monarchy from having any authority over the British Isles and Commonwealth. Now, we can say, oh, that didn't really happen and stuff, but what's, what's very interesting about this is that from March of 2001 forward, the Queen was pictured on all the money through all the Commonwealth countries with no crown. So you can say, oh, that didn't really happen or whatever, but it did. And so that's um, that's interesting. Speaking of Commonwealth... In uh, Ottawa on Monday, they're having a uh, there's a protest and they're presenting in a Ottawa courthouse, which is like Washington D.C. for us. They're charging Trudeau with treason, so that's kind of that's very interesting. Also, four eyewitnesses have come by have come forward to testify against the Royals about human hunting parties and killing children. And uh, this has been circulating for a long time. Now this is going into the courts. Speaking of the courts, so there was, you know, they've ha- they've got some pretty nefarious stuff going on here. We know that Andrew, we we've got the thing. Uh, he also he, a lot of him, a lot of people don't understand. He has he's got four counts of indictment, indictment, and four counts in the U.S. on um, that was unsealed in January of this year for raping children. The other half-brother that was sired by Philip is Colonel Russell David Williams, which I, that's a whole show in and of itself. He, this guy's up in Canada, and he is currently in jail for rape and torture of women, but he was also a prolific pedophile. So this runs deep, and if you're not sure that it does, then you can always look at the case of Jimmy Seville, who died in prison. But he was a good friend of the royal family, and he was in prison for raping, murdering, 
and cannibalizing children, he was also a necrophiliac. So this is um, very salacious stuff, but actually, actually all proven. So there's a lot of stuff going on right now. The, uh, the central banking system is very strange. They're calling all the money in since the queen died. If you look at pictures of the opening of parliament, you'll see that there's, she's crowned at the normal royal regalia. She's wearing a crown. In 2017, she comes in as a commoner. And she's in a green suit, and there's no horse-drawn carriage, and she's in a car. 2019, she's literally following the crown on a uh, – they're carrying the crown, and she's behind it in their masks. And then in 2022, and this is in May of 2022, there's no queen at all. So you got to start asking yourself, like, what's really going on here? And I think that what we're seeing here is a lot of symbology that says, yeah, this, this isn't legit. Uh, she's been dethroned. It's been my view that she's been dead for a while. Um, we'll find out, I guess. I mean, that's a theory. I don't know. I mean, it's a hypothesis, I should say. And uh, we'll find out about Charles. But Charles may be the first arrest, and I seriously doubt that he'll ever be coronated. And uh, the, anyway, I, I could go on and on. I found out a lot more than that. But you know, we have short time. So any comments on any of that, Timothy, or my favorite Brit? Well, thank you very much. But no, none at all. I, I'm really happy I completely switched off all television news and sources of information about the Queen. I, uh, I have not followed it, not for one second in the last week. So thanks for those hypotheses. And uh, I'll look into some of them. I'd like to step in here for a moment to point out, as many of our listeners know, we don't all agree. And personally, I don't have any direct experience with the Queen. I have several friends in the UK with polarized opinions about the Queen. So we're presenting materials we think will be useful to you. But of course, it's up to you to do your own due diligence and come to your own conclusions. That's what I have to say. Timothy? Despite the initial unpleasant realization of the truth, we see there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is an increasing number of respected journalists, writers, politicians, doctors, lawyers, influencers, artists, activists, and innovators who are wide awake and are already making great impact. All they require from you is to unplug from mainstream and social media propaganda, to make your own independent research, to stop acquiescing, and to stand up for what you believe in with respect to others. Remember, you were born with power and you wake up each day with power. It is entirely up to you how you choose to retain or give it away. We've been listening to another live broadcast of The Other Side of the News. Good night, all. This is all of us saying good night to you.